Hi, I'm Adrian from the podcast I'm Also, where I talk to people with multiple careers, pursuits, and interests. My guest for this episode is Gordy Lockhart. Gordy is the manager of The Collective, which is a collaborative workspace for not-for-profit community services. I'll be talking to him about The Collective, plus his connection to The Blues Brothers. Hello, Gordy. Hi, Adrian. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. I guess I'll start with, you're from Scotland. <laughs> How'd you guess? Get that out of the way. What part of Scotland? <laughs> uh, West Coast, from Glasgow. Oh, you're Glasgow. I'm from Glasgow, absolutely, yeah, definitely. It's a beautiful part of the world, a beautiful part of the world. We went back for a bit of a holiday in 2009 uh, to, to Scotland and amazingly managed to hit the best weather Scotland had had in about 25 years. Uh, so and I think it didn't th- rain for a day. It, it didn't rain for two weeks. It was astonishing. I don't think that's ever happened in my first 34 years in Scotland where you got at least three days without rain. But it was just beautiful. I think Scotland on a beautiful day is one of the best places in the world. Um, I, lived, I lived in Edinburgh for a couple of years. and Oh, did you? I loved it. Oh, loved cool. It over, yeah. And did you go and see the Highlands and so on? Yeah, yeah, I did all that. Yeah, I really loved it. I would have stayed there if my visa hadn't run out. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. But can happen. Oh, it's yeah. so atmospheric. Yeah, I think we did what's now known as the uh, the Northern Five Hundred, which was the oh, yeah, was yeah. The, the the route from Aberdeen right round the top, John O'Groats down the west coast. Um, we're in places there's just single track, literally single track roads with sheep all over the place, and uh, and as I say, it was great weather. So it was just oh, the castles. It was amazing. Did, I'll do that. The other question: the football. You got a football team. I was. Do you know? I was. I mean, obviously in Scotland, you grew up with football. You don't grow up with rugby. Um, you know, grew up with football. Rugby's a posh boy sport. Yeah. Um. Um. But in, so, I mean, I was always a Rangers fan in Scotland. But I got sick to the back teeth of the bigotry around the religious aspects. It's madness. Oh, it's just stupid. It's a bloody game, you know. It's yeah. ridiculous, and and obviously it's important to a lot of people, and yeah. that's great. But why you have to mix it with religious hatred? It just it baffles me completely. Yeah, I found it a bit a bit different. Like just after supporting rugby teams, and then you get over here saying, "I first question I asked was like, what football team am I supposed to be supporting?" And it was <laughs> just sort of quiet in the room, and then it was sort of a. As a guy, I tell this great story about um, when we first, when my, my partner and I arrived in, in uh, New Zealand to have our civil union. In fact, uh, uh, we were, I think, the fourth civil union in New Zealand back in 2006. Um, after law had been passed in 2005. Oh, okay. um, but anyway, we were in, in Wellington getting the train back to uh, my now mother and father-in-law's place, uh, who then lived in Otaki. Uh, so we're going to train from Wellington out to, to Otaki to Paraparam. And uh, we got on the train uh, in Wellington, and just then, I presume a game had kicked out of the cake tin, um, and all these football fans piled onto the train. Now, of course, my experience of that in Glasgow was when the Rangers and Celtic fans poured out of Ibrox and came onto the train going back to wherever they were going. And honestly, you were taking your life in your hands. Yeah. You were taking your life in your hands, and it was a horrible experience, you know, filled with chanting and, you know, threats of violence, and it was a horrible, horrible thing. So, of course, Wellington, football fans got on the train, and I'm thinking, oh, no, what's going to happen here? And then all the opposing fans started hugging and high-fiving each other. Wow. <laughs> going, good game! And I thought, oh, this is a different country. Yeah, that must have been a huge cultural shock. <laughs> it was a really good example of New Zealand, you know, at its finest. That whole sort of, you know, good sportsmanship, which I think, you know, Kiwis are really good at, in most cases. Yeah, yeah. So how long have you been in New Zealand now? Uh, 2007, so 13 years so now. 13 years. 13 years, yeah. And, well, I guess apart from sports, was there a big, big cultural shock? 
Apart from um, the language, maybe the language. <laughs> yeah, the language obviously was a big issue. No, I mean it's interesting really because uh, I, I guess you know the, the idea of Scots people in New Zealand obviously it goes but way back yeah. to the, the start of you know um, I guess sort of the colonisation sort of stuff. So um, I, I always talk about when whenever I'm having a yak about colonisation New Zealand, I always say, "Hey, look, it wasn't my fault. That was the English." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, That's another know, thing I learned when I got to Scotland about just blame the English for everything. I just blame the English for everything. Absolutely, it's a pretty good sort of you know, uh, pretty good standard. Just blame yeah. the English. Yeah. Um, certainly, right now in the UK, uh, you just you know with COVID, you know, with, with Scotland and Ireland and Wales all distancing distancing themselves from the English quite quite dramatically. Just blame the English. Um, but uh, no, I, I guess not really. I, as may be evident already, tend to talk quite quickly. And so I guess somebody told me at one point to just to slow down because Kiwis will struggle to understand. Um, and I guess maybe my arrogant response was, nah, <laughs> quicken up. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> we're a bit slow sometimes. But no, I mean, I think, you know, realistically, because Scots people were, um, you know, very prevalent in those initial sort of settlements mm. um, from, uh, I guess, the old country in that respect. Um, you know, New Zealand has got a real Scots culture. You know, you go down south and you still get the rolling R's and all that sort of mm. stuff. So realistically, and again, because a lot of New Zealand culture, particularly on, on TV or uh, sense of humour, can be based a lot on sort of 1970s and 80s British shows, you know, there's a lot of the UK in, in New Zealand. Yeah. Um, and even more so these days, since there's there's so many Brits wanting to move over here. Right, right at the moment, everyone's wanting to move. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's it. Desperate to go even Boris. Boris, yes. <laughs> I'll move on to a more positive topic. Apart from Boris, um, your job, what you're doing here at the collective. Yes, indeed. Um, what does that involve? What well, it's. It's a fascinating project. I mean, I guess long story short, back in in two thousand, about five years ago, Tech, who who some people may not know, is the Taronga Energy Consumer Trust. So it's the uh, electrical um, consumer trust for Taronga. They have uh, uh, what they essentially do is they have a, a, an investment portfolio that's worth nearly a billion dollars. Uh, the revenues that they get, the sheer dividends that they get from that on an annual basis, they then distribute to the consumers of Trust Power within the Western Bay. But there's also a given percentage they then distribute to charitable not-for-profit organizations. So up to five years ago, Tech wouldn't provide charitable and not-for-profit organizations with funding for what they call operational expenses. So they wouldn't provide funding to pay your lease or pay your electricity bill and that sort of stuff. They would pay for uh, the idea of employing somebody to go and deliver the services of whatever the community service organization was, but they wouldn't pay for the place from which that service was delivered. Yeah. So basically, it got to the point four years ago where techs were getting so many requests for that operational funding, they eventually said, okay, well, in this certain you know tick box scenarios, we will give that. But realistically, uh, after a year of doing that, they thought, okay, well, we've given X million dollars, essentially from community funds into the hands of private landlords. Surely there is a more effective way of using these community funds. So the idea came to build a facility that offered the ability for organizations to base themselves there. They still pay, at least pay a rent, mm -hmm. but it goes back to tech. Um, so the funds come full circle, which is a much more sensible way of spending the money. I think you'll agree. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it wasn't like a hard sell to actually get it set up then, was it? No, uh, not at all. I mean, ultimately, you know, techs ha have an investment portfolio, yeah. you know, based on all that recurring sort of dividend that then goes yeah. back to the community. So obviously techs still want a return on the funds that they've invested into the collective. Uh, it's called the social impact return, social investment. 
Um, so ultimately, they will get a return on that. And, and we were very fortunate in our first year of business um, to make $142,000 profit. Oh, really? All of which go straight back to tech for reinvestment into the community. Yeah, it's quite clear. Which is lovely. But I guess the greater idea alongside that, which is super cool in itself, the other idea is that through being in a shared space, through being together in the same environment, organizations can learn from each other, organizations can connect, they can collaborate, and in doing so, you know, they'll become more efficient and, and provide even better service to their clients. Yeah, because it's pretty it's impressive setup. Um, just looking at the building, it so, is. It's cool. Yeah, I remember when they when they said they're, they're going to make some building for community people, and I thought, oh, they're going to put some little. <laughs> it's going to be a shed. <laughs> it's going to be some shed, and then you see this. <laughs> what's going on there? Well, you know, but it's crucial in the sense that we talk about well being all the time. Yeah. You know, and, and I guess fundamentally we have three goals. One of which is is personal well being. You know, uh, the workplace has changed in twenty twenty into somewhere that you've got to be comfortable. Mm. And the general theory is that if you are happy, you know, if Adrian is happy in Adrian's workplace, Adrian is far more likely to go and talk to other people. Uh, far more likely to be engaged uh, and therefore is far more likely to provide a better service in the job that he's doing. Uh, and that's exactly our theory in the sense that we want people to talk to each other because in doing that, they'll start to look at how they can collaborate together and provide better service to their clients. So having a really cool, fun, vibrant, good-looking place to work is, is a really crucial part of it. Mm. And you're set up for um, like a sustainability focus as well. That's right. I mean, fundamentally, we have three goals, one of which, I guess, has the sort of broad brush strokes. We see um, every dollar and every minute we can save an organization is a dollar and a minute that they can redirect to client service, mm. you know broad brush strokes. Mm -hmm. The middle one is the well-being thing. You know, we want people to be happy in what they're doing. And the last thing is sustainability, yeah. you know? So we want to be a model of workplace environmental sustainability. In fact, we were really lucky last year at the Westpac Chamber of Commerce Business Awards uh, to win the Sustainable Business Award. Yes, I was at that. Oh, were you? Yeah, yeah. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was a good night, actually. It was. It was a great night, absolutely, yeah. yeah. I, was, I was really impressed. And you're up for an award this year, actually, as well, aren't you? Yes, indeed. Well, we, we've entered six categories this year because, of course, we've got one full year of business, um, one full year where we're two years old, but we've got one full yeah. year of reporting under our belt. Um, and I guess our fundamental theory in entering the business awards is quite different in the sense that yeah, of course, it's nice to win the award. And, and, and if we don't, obviously, I'll be disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> but that's not the principal reason. The principal reason uh, revolves around the idea of keeping the principles of social investment and social impact front and centre in the eyes of the business community. So we want to make sure that whenever a business award is being given out, you know, we understand that, um, yes, of course, profit and money are important, but it's not the only thing. Mm. You know, community and people are, are right up there too. Yeah, I mean, with COVID, everyone's suddenly realising more about the, the people side of things, aren't they? And the work from home situation. Everyone's, yeah, I mean, how you're feeling. Absolutely. I mean, there are some fairly hideous examples out there in the commercial world of, of, of organisations and, and companies not really respecting the, the, the community and people. Um, so I think it's really important that we do keep that front of mind. Tarong yeah. is really good at that, to be fair. Yeah. Uh, Tarong is really, really good at uh, keeping an eye on the people and making sure that either employees or community in general are. are are looked after and um, we do have um you know a fairly sizable uh, population um, in the i guess the lower social social economic order um, and i think we need to make sure that we're aware of that and, and improving that as much as we can what about sustainability as as a region or as a country are we improving there you reckon oh, I, I mean that this is going to be a very subjective opinion based on on my i guess latter based on far your... more qualified people to comment on this than i i think in general the biggest thing that, that we can look at as individuals is our transport 
options. Yeah. I mean, Tauranga, you know, is a city of single occupancy car drivers. And realistically, there are some people... very bad drivers as well. <laughs> this is true. I, I ride a motorcycle most of the time. I can tell you that's yeah. absolutely true. No, I think real. I mean, I have a view that you know, if if one is a single occupancy car driver, uh, one loses the right to complain about traffic. <laughs> that's very true. It's everyone else's fault, though, isn't it? When you're in the car, it's it's not it's not your fault. Well, and, and there are there are people out there who need to drive a car by themselves because they need to whatever transport gear or take kids to school stuff like that. But there are equal. There are heaps of people out there who choose to sit in traffic for hours every morning who don't need to. You know, they can ride a motorcycle, they can ride a bike, they can get a scooter. You know, get the bus. Um, you know, there, there are certainly things that need to improve in our Tauranga roads. There are certainly uh, options in terms of public transport that need to be looked at. Um, but ultimately, we as individuals need to make the decision to move to something different in order to make, I guess, traffic flow easier, but also, as a result of that, the impact on the environment. Mm. Mm. I'm just drive my cab by myself. <laughs> it's all right. It's not your fault. It's not my fault. It's not your fault. You know, it's, it's everybody else's fault, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> You had Jacinda come in as well, didn't you? I really did. That was brilliant. You know, that was that was amazing. We've been we've been trying to get Jacinda to open the collective. Um, what's that? Was almost eighteen months ago, or, or two years ago? We first spoke to Jacinda's office uh, around uh, would she open the collective for us, and of course she was just unbelievably inconsiderate because she was having a child then, wasn't she? Oh my! You know, it's just just so inconsiderate. No, no. So obviously, she just couldn't do it at that point in time for perfectly understandable reasons. Um, so we ended up having the Governor General open the collective um, last year, which was superb. Uh, Dame Patsy Reddy was was wonderful. Um, but yes, I, I was having a chat with uh, Jan Tanetti, our, our local list Labour MP. Uh, and uh, Jan had sort of uh, been talking about how she was still continue to try to get Jacinda to come to the collective. Um, and then the following Tuesday, I got the phone call from the Prime Minister's office to say she's coming. Wow. So that was that was amazing, and she spent a good hour and a half with us in the collective, sort of understanding what we were up to. Um, she spent a long time talking to the members in the building, and, and, and you know, four or five members specifically about the services they provide. Um, and uh, she was superb. And I got to say, I, mean, I have never seen an individual be mobbed, a prime minister be mobbed in the same way as Jacinda was. Um, everywhere she went at the historic village in the collective, there was somebody wanting to take a selfie, or there was people sort of, you know, watching from afar, smiling furiously. It was, it was really interesting to see that. Mm. She can do no wrong at the moment, but uh, I should say we're not sure when this will be released. So maybe she's done something wrong by the time I publish this. <laughs> it is politics. It is indeed, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um, who are some of the the big names in the collective? Then who's in who's in the building? Well, we've got a mix. We have this sort of remit around collaborative practice and, I guess, service improvement. So we have a mix of not-for-profit, charitables, social enterprise and commercial organisations. Yeah. And uh, we only allow anybody into the collective on the basis that they agree to either some sort of corporate social responsibility, if they're a commercial organisation, but they all must agree to taking part or participation in the concept of the collective. So collaboration, connection and so on and so on. So we have a whole mix of organisations on the not-for-profit side. We've got the you know, Stroke New Zealand, uh, Deaf Aotearoa. We've got an organisation called Connexu, um, who are amazing. They're actually a really interesting organisation. They have a number of homes throughout Tauranga um, in which they have workers who look after people with either physical or intellectual disabilities who live in those homes. Uh, and it's real care in the community stuff. It's fantastic. The things they do are amazing. But Connexu operate essentially their admin base from the collective. Uh, but then the good example of that is across the, the sort of the, the, the privacy screen from Connexu in the collective is an organisation called Community Living, uh, 
Now, community living are the people who supply all the equipment that you would find in those homes. Oh. So the likes of I know, shower grab rails or um, wheelchairs, things like that. So in days gone by, when Connects you needed a particular product, they would have to email or phone and they'd have to say, look, hey, what, what do I need in this environment? What's good for you know Johnny who's got this particular disability? Um, whereas now they just stand up and say, uh, Jackie, yeah. <laughs> what do I need and how can I get it? Yeah. And Jackie goes, it's on the way. Wow. You know, it was a really good example of organizations working together. Yeah, it saves so much time. It does, exactly. Yeah. Let's move on to your creative side. <laughs> I guess it's a different sort of creative in the arts. Yes, indeed. Um, I see it. I read 30 years on the stage. Oh, shut up. <laughs> that just makes me feel old. <laughs> oh, sorry. I read there. It was three years. On three the, years. Three years. Yeah. On the, you've done well. Yeah. In, in your three years. <laughs> and the blue, a write-up, the Blues Brothers... First contact. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, yes, you're right. I, mean, I, I sort of, in Scotland, uh, you know, since age 17, which, as we just said. Just tw- you're 20 was, now. Done well. <laughs> exactly. It was only three years ago. Um, no, back in Scotland in the 1990s, I sort of started on uh, in sort of amateur drama. I guess, or community theatre, whatever you want to call it. And um, it's, it's great fun. You know, it's, I think for, for kids particularly, it's a really good way of, of improving your social uh, well-being, uh, certainly getting out there and increasing confidence levels and that sort of stuff. So I started way back then, the mid-1990s, um, and uh, continued in, in New Zealand. Um, the Blues Brothers itself came from a discussion I had with uh, my co-writer, Liam, uh, Liam Hagen, uh, about four and a half years ago when I, I think I made the comment it was probably as a result of too many beer and chips um, that we thought, oh, well, let's do the Blues Brothers musical. Um, quickly discovered with a bit of Googling that there, in fact, never had been a Blues Brothers musical. <laughs> and thought, oh, well, that's a bit weird. Um, so I guess we'll just sort of put something to, we'll, we'll essentially screenwrite the original movie. So we thought, better get permission. Um, because you've got to do these things right. There was yeah. an instance last year of, uh, I guess, a student production of what they described as the Rocky Horror Picture Show oh, in yes. Wellington. I remember that. Yeah. Got shut down yeah. a day before opening yeah. by whomever it was that had the rights, which was horrifying. So we thought, we don't let that happen. So we eventually found this guy whose name was Eric Gardner, and, and he was the agent for uh, what we eventually discovered was called um, Blues Brothers Approved Ventures, an organization owned by Judy Belushi and Dan Aykroyd. Uh, and he was the agent at the time. And, and, and Eric basically said, look, no, there never has been a Blues Brothers musical, fundamentally because Judy Belushi and Dan Aykroyd own the intellectual property for the Blues Brothers, but Universal Studios own the scripts to the movies. Yeah. And for whatever reason, they've never got it together to get a stage musical based on the original movies. So he said, look, we'll probably be able to get you the IP for the, the Blues Brothers, but you'll have to write a whole new show. Mm-hmm. You, and you cannot use any of the original characters, save Jake and Elwood. So I was like, okay, you know, a bit of a challenge. But of course, you know, most people would have sat down at that point and said, oh, well. <laughs> I, you know, I would have presumed you just would have got a no <laughs> and, and move on to something else. Well, basically, we said that, that, we're going to do this. So, um, essentially, about a year later, you know, we had uh, a finished script, uh, which actually was slightly different than the end up, but we had a finished script um, based on the Blues Brothers fighting the war on terror, <laughs> which I was apt at the time. Yeah. Um, we, by that point, Eric Gardner was not on the scene. I don't know what happened there, but uh, we he, he put us in touch with Judy directly. 
Judy Belushi. That's so, the this is that's the wife, isn't it? Right, that's yeah. the um, widow of Wid- uh, sorry, widow yes. of uh, of John Belushi. Absolutely, yeah. So we got in touch with Judy, um, who was really supportive. She, she's a little bit slow in the communications, is our Judy. She's she's lovely, but a little bit slow in the comms. I think she'll admit yeah. herself. But um, uh, with, through lots of negotiation, through lots of chats, through lots of sort of discussions on storyline, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, we eventually got uh, Judy to agree to give us the intellectual property, to give us the contract, and um, you know we had a finished show uh, that then had pivoted to this idea of first contact. Um, so yeah, and it went on stage in Taronga on the twenty eighth, no, eighteenth September. Mm, so it got delayed by COVID as well, didn't it? Oh my God, yeah. I mean, essentially, we were due originally to be on stage in April. Um, obviously, that was shut down at the end of March. Um, we sort of came back to it in mid-May, um, when sort of everybody was back to, we were sort of just into level two. And we thought, well, of course, by the time you know we get to the point that we'll be able to put it on stage, we'll be at level one, um, which we were. Um, sadly, because of the new dates, we then had to recast four of the main actors. And in fact, Liam, my co-writer, had been directing the show, and because of work commitments, he could no longer direct it. So I had to sort of jump into oh into that seat as well. Um, fortunately, it all worked out in the wash. And then, of course, we were 20, uh, we're 40 hours away from putting it on in August when we were then at level one, when I remember vividly watching what was the final uh, rehearsal before opening. And in fact, the cast had just started the finale of the final rehearsal 40 hours before opening. And somebody whispered in my ear, have you seen the news? Um, and we were obviously told at that point in time of, you know, Auckland level three, yeah. New Zealand level two, which basically shut us down again. Wow. Um, so then we had this hideous period of sort of, you know, what turned out to be five weeks when we just didn't know what was happening. As you remember, the government said every two weeks, well, we'll review, we'll review, we'll review. And what we were trying to do was basically pick up the show and move it by the period. Um, but of course, that meant every two weeks it was, right, we're not going on this week, so it'll be next week. And the idea of trying to, I guess, and, and the cast were brilliant. I mean, there was no issues there whatsoever. But the idea of trying to keep, you know, 60 people involved in a show motivated when they were ready for stage um, to keep going was, um, it was pretty tough and pretty stressful. Mm. What was it, what was a key thing you learned from that experience? <laughs> uh, uh, well, Maybe on the creative side. On the- <laughs> I was going to say, don't do it during a worldwide yeah. pandemic. Um, oh, the... I guess it was, uh, from my perspective, it was the first time I'd directed a musical. So that was really interesting for me. I mean, I've done a, a fair bit of sort of, you know, direction and sort of stage work in the past, but I never had directed a musical. And it's quite different, you know. Um, I guess the key learning for me is is about, uh, we had a concept around the idea of engaging the audience with the transition music. Um, so we had sort of longer pieces of transition music in order to try and get people engaged in the music and that sort of stuff. But of course, during the transition, you have a blackout on stage. Uh, on stage, that tends to mean you don't get a complete blackout, you still see people moving about. So the audience's eyes still go to the movement and still go to people on stage. So I think my learning is that the transition music, albeit we had uh, I had an idea of people being engaged in it, was still probably a bit too long. Um, you know, people again got distracted by the music because they were still watching movies on stage. But over the piece, we sort of, you know, we learned that and we shortened it down and it was better and better and better each night. Mm. So like anything, you always learn for little bits and pieces and so on down the way. Um, but I, I think, and from based on the feedback I've heard, um, people really, really, really enjoyed it. Mm. So would you potentially um, run it again? Well, it's an interesting question. It's not the first time that's been asked, but yeah. the, 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 I guess... The com- I was going to say irritation. Complication um, would be that in order to get the IP, uh, Liam and I had to sign over the copyright of the script to oh. Judy Belushi and oh. Dan Aykroyd. 
Um, which is fine. We have a writing credit, you know, yeah. if they ever use that script. Yeah. But equally, it also means that should we, or in fact anybody else, want to do the show, just like they would have to do with any other show, they have to go to the rights holders to get permission yeah. to do that. So obviously, uh, you know, we would have to we would have to get a hold of of Blues Brothers Approved Ventures to request permission to use that script, um, which I'm sure they'd get. Uh, yeah. But nonetheless, it, it means you you can't just go and do it. Yeah. Um, so it's got that added complication. But for Liam and I, it was never about doing it again or it being done elsewhere. Obviously, if it, if it is, that's amazing, and I look forward to it. Um, but for Liam and I, it was just about one drunken night four years ago, and we thought, uh, you know, let's do the Blues Brothers musical. Yeah. Uh, and it was only ever intended to be a Tarana thing. Yeah. Um, that it ended up being, you know, hugely popular. And I think we were really chuffed when when uh, the president of Tarana Musical Theatre, Jeremy Sparrow, was a great bloke. Um, announced to the cast in the last week that from a ticket sales perspective Blues Brothers was officially the most successful show Turing Musical Theatre has ever done wow, in Westside Theatre yeah. which was amazing and, and, and I guess there was fundamentally you know, there was two reasons for that I can't claim complete credit for that I think the Blues Brothers uh, as a concept will have been part of it um, but equally I think Covid will have been a part of that too you know, in the sense of people quite keen to get out and uh, do something that wasn't just going to the pub Mm. Um, or or that sort of stuff, you know. Because we've had so many events cancelled this year, uh, that events are starting again. Hopefully, you know, going to continue. Um, that uh, people are quite keen to get out and enjoy a show, and hopefully that they did. Yeah. Does your um, you know, some people, well, my myself, you know, some you got like you say your day job, and then you've got your sort of creative pursuits. Sort of sometimes it's hard to switch your brain over. <laughs> do you have any troubles with that, or is it all just the same sort of? Well, it's it's interesting because you know, my my job um, at the collective is about I guess sort of strategy, it's directing you know, it's making sure that people are comfortable, it's motivating it's all those things and it's exactly the same yeah. in a show so fundamentally it, it's no different at all I mean, same skills. the same skills, exactly I mean obviously the the, the jam is, is a different flavour, um, you know, but ultimately it's the same sort of process involved um, and, and I love both and, and, and I guess that's probably why they're similar is because I'll put my staff on it which ends up being similar yeah so would you do like you say you're nine to five and then start on that at night to get everything done yeah i mean it's it's both roles are pretty full-on i mean certainly my my day job my sort of collective role is it's you know it's far more than a day job yeah you know and it's great i love it to bits but it's certainly very you know encapsulating is probably Mm. the best description you know it's very full-on you know we have essentially the the well-being of 90 residential members and you know 146 non-residential member organizations to consider everything we're doing and and it's not a hospitality environment, you know, yeah. it's, it's an environment whereby we try to encourage these organisations to connect with each other. So that involves thinking about how you can connect Johnny with Sheila and, and that sort of stuff. Yeah. So that's pretty full on. Um, so then to go to do that at night again for Blues Brothers was was really entertaining. It was really good fun. Um, I think if I speak purely personally, you know, when you added obviously COVID into that mix and the, the huge stress that that was, particularly the second time, you know, I found a huge difference, as you'll probably appreciate in terms of uh, compliance in very yeah. commas, uh, with COVID-2 and COVID-1. And that caused me and my team at the collective a substantial amount of stress. You know, so between, um, you know, COVID, Blues Brothers, the job, um, and sadly I lost my brother in January as well. Um, this year has been uh, not the best, shall mm. we say. I think, the, what did the Queen call it? Annus Herubulus. Yeah, even the Queen said that. <laughs> I'll ask, sticking on the music, have you got a favourite musical? Um, do, 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 
No, I don't actually. No, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say I have a favourite musical. I'm not. I, you know, it's quite funny. Jeremy Sparrow again. I mentioned him earlier on the, the president of Durham Musical Theatre. Uh, Jeremy's a great bloke, but on his and he'll hate me for saying this. Um, his car stereo was just endless show songs. Yeah. Um, he's straight, I should add, because obviously, you know, there there could be an assumption there. <laughs> Um, but uh, but you know, he's endless films. But I don't have. I love musicals and they're great fun. But I guess I probably get more involved in the story. I mean, in, in yeah. my head, it's, it's you know the story of musical is more important than necessarily music. Um, obviously, that's a crucial part of it, as is the story. Um, and I think that's. I, I'm not a fan of the sort of the, the I guess the jukebox musicals, you know, because it then just becomes about singing a song. You know, that idea where I guess probably. Um, uh, the ABBA musicals, you know, they are probably a good example of that. They were basically just uh, musicals put together. Oh, you put, yeah, put the songs together. Yeah, and... just oh, excuse for singing the ABBA songs. Yeah, yeah. You know, there was no real story to it. Um, whereas, oh, Mary... there was a story. It was just. It was a shocking. <laughs> it's just not the most. Deep. Whereas Mary Poppins, you know, um, I would probably class as, as a really, really good show. Yeah. Um, and actually, have you seen you know the musical, the movie Saving Mr. Banks? Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So that was obviously the story yeah. of um, the writer of Mary Poppins. Yeah. And it was it was fascinating to watch the musical Mary Poppins after having watched Mr. Banks, yeah. because you got the story of names left in the head uh, of the writer um, and what essentially Mary Poppins was about. And Mary yeah. Poppins, the musical, um, was about her childhood. Yeah. And it was about how, you know, she had this really weird relationship with her father, who was a drunk. Um, but he loved her, sorry, she loved him very much. Um, but he was this drunk who was never around for her and so on. And Mary Poppins was, was about that. That was the story yeah. of Mary Poppins. So when you watch the musical and uh, in that context, it's really upsetting. Yeah, It's just opening at the Civic, isn't it? I think Mary Poppins. It is, yeah. yeah it's, I think it's yeah. like the only musical going in the world, just, just about. Because yeah, we were first. Yeah, after you. Yeah. <laughs> after the Blues Brothers, after the first Blues contact. Brothers, yeah. <laughs> so no, for, I guess for me, I mean, I, I mean uh, things like Jesus Christ Superstar, you know, are, are a good show, not because I'm particularly religious, just because the songs and the music and that is great, coupled with a story we know, you know, obviously in, in my view it's more of a story than anything else, but you know, it's still an interesting show and the music is fabulous. Um, so, you know, things like that are always really good. I think Cats is overrated. <laughs> I mean, Cats is one of those excuses to sing some songs. I went and saw it and I was like, no, I just can't get over these guys are dressed as cats. Have you seen the movie? It's just bizarre. I, uh, I, I've watched a little bit. I watched the first ten minutes. I'm thinking, what? What is this? It's pretty bad. <laughs> my, it's funny. My other half, Leon, is a, a private music teacher, mm-hmm. um, and also musically directs shows uh, around the, the Western Bay, uh, and is in the middle right now of, of starting to do Phantom uh, with Fakatani mm-hmm. Theatre Group, uh, Phantom the Opera, and that is one of the really good shows. Yeah. But the interesting thing with Phantom is that Phantom, as a show, as a story, is it, it's a bit light. You know, it's about this weird sort of, you know, slightly disfigured guy who falls in love with, a, you know, a, a singer in the theatre. But the, the whole thing, at least in London, was based on this piece of theatre, a piece of prop, which if you remember this idea, it's got this massive big um, uh, chandelier. Mm that uh, in various places it either drops from the ceiling or swings violently at one point when the phantom commands it to. And of course that piece of music that and everybody goes along to phantom because you're waiting for the chandelier and the and if you go to get there and you realise the rest of it's not very good. I saw that in Melbourne actually and I was like yeah waiting for that that's it exactly yeah (laughs) and you enjoy it because you get that you you get the chandelier you get the big track um, and it's quite nice depends how well the show's done but it's quite nice but as an actual story it's a bit light 
I'll let old um, what's his name? T- tell Tim Race that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And I think you no, know, Tim Race. So, yeah. yeah, Tim Race does the story. Andrew Lloyd Webber does, does the, music. the music. Yeah. <laughs> so the music's great, but Tim, sort yourself out, so, mate. Yes. What do you, What else have you done? You've done nothing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> My last topic was um, cause you're organising as well. You've done the Tauranga Pride picnic. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. What's when, when you get an idea for that, you just go along the council and say, hey, I want to run an event. I'm sure there's lots of, is it a lot of paperwork for that as well? <laughs> well, I was very fortunate. There's a, a lady called Helen Alice, who's the uh, general manager of, of Breast Cancer Bay of Plenty. And uh, Helen, I guess, came up with the idea. Well, I didn't come up with the idea of Pride. Obviously, that's been going for a long, long time. Um, but uh, developed the idea for Pride Tauranga. Um, and that came from, I remember, when was this? It was four years ago, there was that shooting in the uh, the gay nightclub in, in Florida, in Tampa. Uh, the guy sort of walked into a, a gay nightclub and killed a whole bunch of people. And there was a student at Catty Catty College who had decided on the basis of that event to hold a Pride Day at their school in Catty Catty College, which was great, a very brave thing to do. Yeah. Um, and Helen had spotted the news of that. And obviously I thought, well, you know, let's have a Pride celebration in Tauranga. So um, at the time, this was, what, two years ago, three years ago now, um, Helena said, well, you know, would I help her out? And uh, obviously happily, you know, having done many a show in the past and, you know, had a, an idea of how to present that on the day itself. So Helen and I, another small bunch of people, you know, sort of organised the first Pride. And you, can you believe it? The inaugural Pride in Taranga Moana was in 2019. Wow. You know, and that's incredible itself, you know. Um, so we did the first year and that was really cool, that was brilliant. Um, the second year, obviously 2020, I think we were incredibly lucky. We, we did that on the 8th of March this year, um, you know, two weeks, three weeks before Just the entire before, country yeah. was shut down. So incredibly lucky to actually to get that in. Um, but it was fascinating. And, and I guess to your question, yeah, I mean, there is a huge amount of organisation going so into it. I think this year, particularly uh, the 2020 idea, we tried to expand it beyond the idea of simply one event. So we had uh, 16th Ave Theatre uh, did a, a Pride show. They had their writers um, from the, the, the group there produce some uh, LGBT themed one act plays and they were really cool. Um, the idea of education around Pride is, is really crucial. Um, I, in fact, I guess the interesting story I always sort of go with is the explanation of of the word gay, you know, uh, very few people understand where the word gay came from. Do you know? Nope. There you go. <laughs> I know it's changing meaning because you watch a 1970s British comedy and it's a different. They go, that's a very, he's very gay, isn't happy. That's, a- that's right. Well, it's interesting because there's that. Oh, I mean, I guess in New Zealand, there's a hideous sort of, you know, inadvertent most of the times homophobia when somebody says that's gay, yeah. you know, because you're using it in a disparaging term and you shouldn't do that, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Rightly so. But the word gay referring to, you know, I guess the LGBT community was never about the word happy or anything else. Essentially, in 1969, um, the Stonewall movement started in New York City um, after the Stonewall riots and so on. In London, uh, the following year, 1970, uh, there were other um, LGBT sort of groups formed and started to protest the LGBT rights movement and so on in London. One of the campaigns that was developed in 1971 uh, was a campaign called Good As You, mm. shortened to G-A-Y. Uh, and, and obviously the, because being gay was illegal at that point in time, you could be arrested and thrown in prison for being gay, certainly in the UK, uh, then people obviously wouldn't come up go up to somebody in, in, in a nightclub and say, are you, know, are you homosexual? You know, they would say, are you gay? Because nobody understood what that meant. Um, and that was a code word, you know, oh. used for, you know, do you want to have a date or whatever, that sort of stuff. 
Um, so that's where the word gay came from. And that's why today there's a, a very, very famous um, LGBT nightclub in London uh, that's not called gay. It's called G-A-Y because it's after that campaign, good as you. So that idea of education around the LGBT world, and I guess from my perspective, you know, I think that that, that we as um, sort of, I'm going to use the word older, <laughs> so upset. Older, you know, I guess I'm 47, shut up. <laughs> older people in, in the community these days have a responsibility to, to make sure that younger people who may be struggling with their identity uh, know that that's okay, you know. Uh, I think we came up with sort of the hashtag, you know, you be you. It doesn't matter who you are, you know, just make sure that you be you. Um, don't be somebody else's you, you know, you be you. Uh, and I think that's really important, you know, 10% of our community, whether, you know, that's the statistic, isn't it? 10% of our community, it doesn't matter uh, what colour your skin, are from the LGBT community. So we need to make sure that those people are comfortable in that skin. And mm. uh, I think that's really important. Mm, that's good. Last part of my show is plug a product where you want to promote something. <laughs> you got anything out there you want to promote? Oh my or, God. or like want to promote something else? Or I'm gonna say that I would love to promote the idea of people working together for the betterment of our society. You know, I think um, I uh, I don't want to engage in sort of political discussion, but I'm certainly of a view that the last forty years have caused our society to be a bit uh, self focused. Yeah. I'm gonna say, um, and uh, our world has become about what's in it for me. It's become about the whiff of me. We hear that all the time, don't we? What's in it for me? In fact, it always used to irritate me when I saw the reports on TV on the budgets of any given year, and the announcer would announce the budget with, "Let's see what's in it for you." And of course, the idea from my perspective is that it's not about what's in it for you. It's about what's in the greatest interests of the society. So I think from my perspective, I'd love to see a world that's much less about dollars and much more about people. Uh, and much more about the health of a society. And, and I guess society starts at your next door neighbour. Society starts at your brother down the road. You know, it starts at your local supermarket. It starts at your local bike shop. Um, and extends beyond that to your great society, to your country and to the planet. So if we can have a world, and that's my plug, if we can have a world that focuses more on people, I'll be happy, man. Great. Thank you very much. We'll <laughs> leave it there. A nice positive note. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for your time. <laughs>